It's 2019, the first Sunday of 2019. It's a new year and it's a new series. And I'd like to invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, it's in the New Testament. As you move into the New Testament past the Gospels, you get to the book of Acts, then Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. And so that's where we are. Um, if you were here during uh, December, we had the season of Advent where we had a series that was Messy Christmas. And um, as we go into the book of 1 Corinthians, I was tempted to take this series, Messy Church, <laughs> um, and we'll probably see why as we get into this book. Uh, the, the church at Corinth is a very messy church. Um, a lot of people say, you know, we're a first uh, first century, we're a New Testament church, and, and usually that's said in a very positive way, um, you know, because we, we're going back to the roots and we're going to be like this, but when people say that, probably not thinking about the church at Corinth when they say we're a New Testament church because um, they might not be super excited about what they see. Um, and yet, maybe they are. Um, and, and maybe we should be because there are some amazing things we're going to see as we look at the church at Corinth. Um, but this series, uh, we, instead of calling it Messy Church, we've called it Becoming um, and subtitled Pursuing Spiritual Maturity in the Gospel. And so I'll unpack that a little bit as why we called it that and what that's all about. And so, um, so if you will, please follow along in your copy of God's Word, or it will also be projected up on the wall behind me as I read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. Before we continue and consider this passage, let's stop and let's pray. And as we bow our heads, let me invite you to pray. Pray for yourself and for those who are seated around you.
And if you would also please pray for me. Father, as we embark in a new series um, in this book, First Corinthians, we ask your spirit to uh, draw us close, to reveal your truth to us and to grow us, to grow us in maturity in the gospel. Lord, for that to happen, we need you. We ask that you would use this time now as we consider your word together. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. So I'd like to highlight for us from this passage three things, and um, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. The first thing I want you to see is a gospel perspective, a gospel perspective. You know, our daughter, uh, Lainey, just finished her first semester of college, and um, and she's not here today. She's actually in Dallas coming back tomorrow um, at a conference. And uh, and this is this is a letter I'd like to read for you that's not from her but it was written to parents from a daughter who had just finished or completed the first three months of college. Okay, so let me specify or clarify again. This was not her letter, but this was a different daughter's letter to her mom and dad. And here's here's how it goes. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, it has been three months since I left for college. I've been remiss in writing, and I'm very sorry for my thoughtlessness in not having written before. I will bring you up to date now, but before you read on, please... Sit down. You are not to read any further unless you are sitting down. Okay. Well, then I'm getting along pretty well now. The skull fracture and the concussion I got when I jumped out of the window of my dormitory when it caught fire shortly after my arrival are pretty well healed by now. I only spent two weeks in the hospital and now I can see almost normally and only get those headaches once a day. Fortunately, the fire in the dormitory and my jump was witnessed by an attendant at the gas station near the dorm, and he was the one who called the fire department and the ambulance. He also visited me at the hospital, and since I had nowhere to live because of the burnt-out dormitory, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. It's really a basement room, but it's kind of cute. He is a very fine boy, and we have fallen deeply in love and are planning to get married. We haven't set the exact date yet, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Yes, Mom and Dad, I am pregnant. I know how very much you are looking forward to being grandparents, and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same love and devotion and tender care you gave me when I was a child. The reason for the delay in our marriage is that my boyfriend has a minor infection which prevents us from passing our premarital blood test, and I carelessly caught it from him. This will soon clear up with the penicillin injections I am now taking daily. I know you will welcome him into the family with open arms. He is kind, and although not well-educated, he is ambitious. Now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no dormitory fire. I did not have a concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I am not pregnant. I am not engaged. I do not have syphilis. However... I am getting a D in sociology (laughs) and an F in biology. And I wanted you to see these marks in the proper perspective. (laughs) Your loving daughter, Jessica. (laughs) So perspective, that's what she's 
trying to get across to her parents. It's what it's all about. You need to see these things in the proper perspective. Well, what in the world do I mean by a gospel perspective? Here in the beginning of this letter, we're introduced and, and he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. So, well, you haven't been to Corinth and we couldn't go to Corinth because it doesn't even exist as it did. What was Corinth in that day? So I want to introduce you to provide just a little bit of perspective um, about what this letter is about and also about the particular perspective that Paul had toward his recipients of this letter. So as we think about that, um, first thing I want you to know is that Corinth, I'll show you a little bit of a map here, um, is located in modern-day Greece. You might be familiar with Athens, Greece, um, and so very close to it is the city of Corinth where Paul would have visited and um, and the city of Corinth was very much of a cosmopolitan city. Um, people from all over the place came to Corinth. It's right there on this little isthmus. That's a little uh, land bridge between one uh, part of land and another. And you can see that it, it served as a port city. It was very commercial. People did a lot of trading there. They were going to build a canal that would uh, connect these two bodies of water that it uh, separated. Um, there was a lot of trade. A lot of money flowed through Corinth. And it was a very multicultural place. There were people from all over who ended up living in Corinth or trading in Corinth, coming through Corinth. And it was very multicultural. Lots of different religions. It had both Greek and Roman elements to this city. Um, and there were a lot of uh, religious things that took place there as well. There were a lot of idols. There were a lot of temples, various kinds of worship. Um, and in addition to that, it was a very sexually active uh, place. In fact, the religion and sex mixed in the form of about a thousand temple prostitutes who served those who came to worship in those places. Uh, so Corinth was a very interesting place. Uh, maybe you can think like a combination of New York City um, and Las Vegas. In fact, an archaeological dig um, took place in the city of Corinth and they unearthed a papyrus. And as they dusted it off and translated the Greek, it said, what happens in Corinth? Stays. No, I'm just kidding. But that, but, but that could have been written about Corinth, because um, it was that kind of a place. Now, um, now Paul, the author of this letter, who introduces himself with the very first word, was a missionary. He had been captured by Christ. He had been an enemy of the church, an enemy of Jesus. And as he was on his way to a city uh, in Damascus, which still exists today. Um, he was going to find Christians, uh, lock them up, or even have them killed. And on his way, Jesus confronted him. And at the time, his name was, he went by the name of Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus confronted him, captured him, and then he became a missionary, particularly to those who were outside of the Jewish tradition, to the Gentiles. And so he would go on a missionary journey. And on one missionary journey, he went several places, and he came back to his home church of Antioch, and then he went on a second missionary journey, and it was during this second missionary journey, recorded in the New Testament book of Acts in chapter 18, that Paul wound up in the city of Corinth. Now, he wasn't alone. Paul was there with his buddies Silas and Timothy, and together they spent some 18 months in the city of Corinth. You can read all about it in Acts 18. And while they were there, they faithfully lived and proclaimed the truth and the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many people heard them and many people believed. And they came out of this context into the faith 
and they, they formed a new church. And so Paul, having established that church, left and then would end up in another place called Ephesus. And it was some five years later when Paul received a letter from the church where they were asking all kinds of questions like, hey, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? And you could see they were very much of a, of a messy church. That then Paul responded to them in the form of the letter that we have here called 1 Corinthians. So have you ever heard somebody who's on the phone, who's standing near you, and you can hear them and you can hear what they're saying, they're saying things like, Oh, yeah, I'll be there in about 30 minutes. Yeah, that sounds like a great place to eat. Um, who else is coming? Okay, super, I'll see you there. And you haven't heard the other end of the conversation, but you can tell just by what you heard a little bit about what was probably going on back and forth. That's kind of like what we have here. We're overhearing a conversation. Paul is responding to the letter that came from the church at Corinth, him having been there five years previous, and now he's answering some questions for them. So that's a little bit of the context. But... Here's what I need you to know. As I describe the city of Corinth, as you can kind of see there um, on the map, it goes on because uh, it is indeed a messy church. As we read later in the letter, we learn some things overhearing the conversation about what their lives were like. And in in one section, in chapter 6, they are described as people who were, um, in this situation, they were sexually immoral. They were idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers, just to kind of get the list started. That's the, that's the context that we have here. And what we're going to see is that they were deeply divided as a group of people. They were a church that was fractured and deeply divided. Not only that, but we're going to learn in this book that they would take one another to court. They had lawsuits against one another. We're going to see in chapter 5 that they were lacking greatly in sexual integrity. One guy is actually sleeping with his stepmother. Some people are coming to communion drunk. So it's this context. Now, Paul writes some 13 letters in the New Testament. He's been a missionary to many different places and has planted churches and context, and you would think this would be the one, if he has anything to say, how does he feel toward this church, this messy church? What is his attitude? What are some words that maybe would capture the feeling? What would, what would it cap, if it was yours, your legacy, five years before you've been there, but now these things are happening in that church, what kind of thoughts and feelings are you going to have toward that church? You know? It might be that I, I'm grieved that, I don't know what you would think. I might think, I'm grieved that I'm somehow affiliated with this, I don't know. And yet, how does Paul feel about them? I want you to look in verse 4. In verse 4, what does Paul say? He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Listen to that heart. The heart of Paul is he is grateful to God for the church in Corinth. And then later in chapter 9, you know how he's going to refer to the church at Corinth? In chapter 9, verse 2, he's going to say, you are the seal of my apostleship. I don't know if I had been Paul, if I would have said that. I might have said something like, behold, the church at Ephesus. <laughs> or check out the, the Philippian church. You know, they suffer and yet they're filled with joy. But he says, no, you, Corinthian church, are the seal of my apostleship. What a perspective Paul has on this church. It's a different sort of perspective. And why is it that Paul has this perspective? 
Look at the end of verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. The reason for his gratitude is the gospel. The reason for his gratitude is the grace of God that has been shown to this group and how they received it. He marvels at the grace of God. In other words, he knows it's not because of anything that they have done, but it's because God has poured out his love on the unlikely, the people who are in Corinth. And you know, what's so beautiful about that is that the love of Paul is a picture, or perhaps maybe better put, a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ. Because his love is a love that is for the unlikely. His love is a love for the undeserving. His grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't come to people who have earned it or somehow performed well enough to acquire somehow God's uh, approval. But no, it has come to people who are undeserving, who are rebels, who have rejected God. And what we have here is we have this beautiful perspective that Paul rejoices in that grace that has come to the people in Corinth. And so that's what we have here. His confidence, his confidence here is in Christ. Look at verse 7 when he says, you know, basically, what's his hope for them? Is it in that they're going to figure this out? No, at the end of verse 7, he refers again to Christ and he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. His confidence is in Christ. In fact, the first 10 verses of this letter drip with the name Jesus Christ again and again and again. If you put your eyes on the page and count in the first 10 verses, you will count no less than 10 times the name Jesus Christ is mentioned. That's Paul's confidence. That's what Paul is marveling in. That's what his assurance is that these people are going to be one day found guiltless before the throne of God because of Christ, who has bought them and is going to bring them there. Now, that's not to say that they don't have some things that they need to address. In fact, the call is to holiness. The call is to holiness. For those who have been called by God, they've been called to be set apart for God. And we see that as we look in verse 2. Look in verse 2, it says, and he's opening up, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those, he says, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the word sanctified and the word saints have the same root word. It has the whole concept of holy. It's the, it's the Greek word hagias, and it just basically means to be holy or to be made holy. What that means is you've been bought by God and you've been called to be set apart for God, for his precious possession and use. And so what it means is that though the grace has come to them and, and God has loved them just as they are, right where they are, he's also calling them to something. He's calling them to become more and more like Christ. And that's why we've called this series Becoming, because the reality is we're all in that process. Those of us who have come to Christ. You see, when a person is adopted into a new family, in a moment, in an instant, that individual, their status is legally changed. They've gone from one status to another in a matter of a moment. But then it takes a while to really realize 
and experience what it means to now have this new status. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they instantly become pure, holy and righteous before God the Father on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. You will never become more holy or more righteous than you are when you place your faith in Christ. And in an instant, in a moment, that happens. And yet there's a reality that there's a process of becoming more and more. It's like an individual who is adopted. And so that's what we mean by becoming. There's a sense in which those who place their faith in Christ are already perfect and are being made perfect. As some theologians like to put it, it's the already and the not yet. And so that's where the Corinthians are. That's where all believers are in this world on earth. And so Paul's love here, you see, is a picture of the love of Christ. We read in another place, Romans 5, 8, that God has demonstrated his love for us in this. And it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Okay, so he didn't wait for us to clean up our act to somehow achieve some sort of moral performance level. And then he would extend his grace and love to us. No, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And yet we're also seeing in the gospel where Jesus would come to a woman, for example, who was caught in adultery. And he said to her, I don't condemn you, neither do I condemn you. But then he says to her, go and sin no more. In other words, his love for us is such that he loves us just as we are, and yet he refuses to leave us just as we are because he loves us that much. So we're in the process of becoming who we are, who he has made us to be in Christ. That's the first thing I want you to see is a gospel perspective. That leads me to number two. Second thing I'd like for you to see from this passage is a gospel lens. I'll just tell you, all three of these points are going to have gospel in them. And the three other words are all going to be synonyms. And you see if you can figure out the distinctions. Number two, a gospel lens. So what's the issue? Because as he opens it, he expresses his great gratitude for them and his confidence in Christ, but then he's going to go into some of the issues, some of the issues that they've raised, the questions that they have, but also issues that are preventing them from fully realizing who they are, from fully becoming who they are in Christ. And so what's he going to do now? He's now going to take every one of these issues, as we're going to see starting here in chapter 1, and he's going to say, what does the gospel have to say about this? How is it that you become who you are? And so we see in the first one, The issue is this. It's found in verse 10. So look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, so it's all found. The first issue is all found there in verse 10. And before we even get into the issue, can I just point out a couple things? Three things real quick. How does he begin before he even gets to the issue? He says, number one, I appeal to you. In other words, it's the love that appeals to them. I'm going to appeal to you. And then who does, how does he refer to them? Brothers. And then he finally says, I appeal to you, brothers, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, I'm just, he's not just going to say, hey, uh, you know, you need to fix it. You need to, you need to get with it, um, you know. Uh, but no, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches into what is the issue? And that is that they are not united, that they are fractured. He says, 
that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the clear issue is this, is that is that they are divided. So how do we understand how you move from being divided to being united in the way that Paul is speaking about? And so he gets a little more specific about how they are particularly divided. In verse 11, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And he gets more specific in verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so what's going on? Basically, there's favoritism. There are groupies. Um, there's all kinds of stuff going on. They have these differences. And so they're divided in all these ways. It's really odd, um, and yet you can understand it because this type of division actually still takes place today where people say, you know, I really like this uh, pastor or preacher. I really like this camp. I'm over here, I'm over there, and we'd like to divide and identify ourselves. I don't know what happened in that day if they said, you know, they had a T-shirt that said, um, I was baptized by Apollos, or um, Cephas, who, by the way, is Peter, um, Peter baptized me, you know, who, who, what, what was it? They were, they were dividing, they were groupies. And he's basically saying, this is not right. Um, and so what I want to think about with you is I want to take this as an opportunity to think about a much larger, this is kind of a micro, I want to go macro on you for just a moment, all right? I want to think about this whole aspect of unity and division that is taking place in the larger picture, really the whole bigger picture of the story of the Bible. So if you look on the wall with me, what you'll see here is a very common way to uh, describe the whole big picture story of the Bible. That is creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Okay, so creation, beginning of the Bible, we had the story of God's creating everything, including humanity. And then we move very quickly to only Genesis chapter 3, and we see how humanity then rejects its creator, and we have what we call the fall, the separation that takes place. But then we read of how God is going to redeem His people. He's going to show that He cares for us despite our rejection. And so we have the story of redemption, which actually begins right there in the Old Testament, but finds its climax and fulfillment in Christ on the cross, where He purchases our redemption with His very blood. And then we have what awaits all who believe in Him, and that is glory or heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, eternity that comes. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Now, how does this relate? Because we could do this with a lot of issues. How does this relate to this, the issue that Paul is raising here with the church at Corinth? Which is this issue of unity or division. And we might actually use this term community and think about it through this lens. Okay, that's the whole idea of the lens. This gospel lens. I want you to think about the whole experience in humanity of community through this gospel lens. Let's start with creation. What was the experience of community at creation? God created everything. He created Adam and Eve, and there was initially perfect fellowship. No shame. It says God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they knew this and enjoyed this fellowship with God, their Creator. And it happened daily. And then, of course, what happens is that when they listened to Satan, listened to the serpent in the garden, who doesn't like community with God, 
though there was perfect community in creation, then we have the fall where we then experience broken community. Because instantly what happens is that Adam and Eve do what? They hide from God. They used to enjoy God walking in the garden, the sound of God walking in the garden. But now Adam and Eve must hide, and they do hide behind bushes. God comes out of them and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? As though God didn't know. But they said, we were naked and afraid, and so we hid. And not only that, when they begin to explain what happened, uh, what we're going to hear is that um, Eve is going to say, well, um, you know, the, the, the serpent gave me the apple or the fruit and I ate of it. And so she starts to blame. And then Adam's going to say, well, the woman that you gave me. And the implication is that it's your fault. It's her fault. There's blaming going on. And so we see not only fracturing between humanity and God, but we see fracturing between humanity itself. And so community becomes broken and it has been broken ever since. We still experience the brokenness of community now. But then, in amazing grace, God comes after broken people. And though we deserve to suffer the consequences of our rejection and the brokenness, God heals and restores us. And so redemption brings about a transformed community of broken individuals who are restored in their relationship to God and in their relationships with one another. And that's the picture of the gospel lens that it gives us. But it doesn't end there. Because what we see is that this transformed community provides a preview of an eternal, glorious community that awaits all who are in Christ. That's what the picture of Revelation gives us. For example, if we go to Revelation chapter 5 or in chapter 7, what we get is a picture that it says he has bought for himself people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who will surround around the throne of Christ and worship him. And so what we have is a community of people who are very different from all across the globe. And yet they are united around Christ. And there's joy and there's depth and worship that takes place there. And so that's the picture that we have. And so let me just say one last thing about this picture that you have in front of you. And that is this, that redemption came about because Jesus Christ on the cross experienced the division that we deserve, the division that took place between himself and the Father. When, as Paul will say in his second letter to the Corinthians, he'll say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when Christ was on the cross and he would utter these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because at that moment he took upon himself my sin and your sin and was then divided from the Father. In other words, he experienced division so that you and I could experience unity with him. And then, of course, God raised Jesus from the dead. So that's how community sees itself, under, is understood through this gospel lens. And what, you know, what I want you to see is that what Paul is dealing with here, and we see it in verse 13, is he says, you, he's essentially saying this, you know, he answers his own uh, this, these questions in verse 13 he, with a series of questions. Uh, look at verse 13, and it's clear what he anticipates the answer to be, right? He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, you know, every one of these questions obviously demands the answer, absolutely no. 
you know, Paul's saying, I don't remember atoning for your sins on the cross. Um, it's all about Jesus is what Paul is saying. And, and so what, what, what happens, what's, what's he's basically calling out amongst the Corinthian church is this. He's saying you're essentially you're, you're letting your differences uh, they don't need to become divisions. You're letting your differences become division. In fact, they must not. They can't be. You are to be a transformed community. Uh, one that reflects gospel unity. You need to become what you are. You are one as a people. You will eternally be one as a people. And you need to reflect that unity that is indeed yours. So they were divided by favoritism. But let me ask you this. What is it that divides us? We can be divided by favoritism. That can happen and does happen still in our day. But there's a lot of other things that divide us as well. We experience disunity when our differences get elevated to the level of division. And they need not be elevated to the level of division. Just think about today, for example, in churches how uh, differences with respect to preferences regarding worship style can be elevated to the level of division. You know, some people say, I really like the hymns. That's where all the rich content is. Um, someone else says, I really like the, the sounds of the contemporary music. And I found some really good faithful, uh, you know, lyrics and content there as well. And so some people say, well, we have a difference of opinion about that. And they elevate those differences into division. Or it might be people with respect to worship. Some say, hey, I, I really like to be expressive in worship. Or others say, I really like to not be expressive in worship. <laughs> um, you know, the Bible actually says, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I command that all men everywhere lift holy hands in worship. And and so there's a biblical precedent and command about how we can praise God with our hands as we worship Him. That our bodies, as we were reminded in the morning, in the opening of this service, that we want to bring our whole selves, mind, heart, even bodies, to worship our Creator God, our Redeemer God. And so we can do that. And also some of us say, no, I really prefer to be quiet. I don't want to be... Uh, I can be active, but it can be more uh, of an internal thing that's happening for me as I'm worshiping God. Should it be loud? Should it be expressive? Should it be quiet? What should it be? We have our preferences. We have our differences. And sometimes we elevate those things into division. I had a conversation with one of our elders um, this week. This was cracking me up. He was describing himself. He said, just talking about his own personal preferences. He didn't say this is a matter of division. But he said, you know, at the end of the service, he said, we, you know, when you do the benediction, and I pronounce that means literally good word, and I put my hand up like this, and I say something like, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and so forth. What do people do in this room? Some of you, must, we're all standing up at that point. Some of you uh, do something symbolically, physically with your hands. You put your hands out like this, and you're receiving the good word that comes from God's word, like that. That's just a, a physical way of, of expressing that, right? And he was just saying, you know, <laughs> he said, my daughter, she's like this. He said, me, me, I'm, I'm like this. She's out here. I'm, I'm right here. And he's basically trying to say, my comfort level is different than hers. I like the idea of expressing physically, but I'm kind of new to it and I'm not sure how I feel about it. And that's just an example of 
different preferences. But what happens when we elevate those and make judgments about them and say, you know, you're not expressive and you're not authentic or um, or no, I don't I don't care for that. I'm not going to do that. Um, That's what happens is when we're elevating differences into division. We can sometimes make secondary issues into primary issues. We can we can take preferences and turn them into prejudices. And so what we don't want to do is allow these differences to become division. Let me just say this, too. Here's what unity is not. Unity is not just forgetting all about standards or convictions or truth. That's not unity. You know, like we can just forget all that stuff and that way we'll all get along. No, that's not true unity. It is very much affirming truth and that truth is the truth of Christ. And secondly, I would say that unity is not uniformity. In other words, that everyone look and think and talk exactly alike. No, God has made a beautiful world of diversity and that unity comes with diversity but it's unity around the person of Christ. You know, I've had the privilege of being a part of something here in Greensboro called the Triad Pastors Partnership. And it's a group of pastors of predominantly African-American churches and predominantly white churches and multi-ethnic churches who share a love for God, Greensboro, and racial reconciliation. And we are united. We have a unity that is wonderful and I love. And we meet once a month to pray and to talk about things in Greensboro. And what's so beautiful about that is that our churches are could hardly be more different. Uh, We have different distinctions, different styles, and so forth, but we are united in this way. It's a great experience of unity in the gospel. As I said before, the key to our unity is to be found in Christ. And that's why, as we look at the first ten verses, and Jesus' name is there um, ten times, that Paul is saying to us, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, the unity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing I want you to see, and that is gospel lens, a gospel lens. So I want you to see a gospel perspective, a gospel lens, and then finally, we'll close with this, I want you to, to see a gospel vision. A gospel vision. Perspective, lens, and vision. Here's what I mean by that. On the cross... Jesus purchased with His blood a gospel-transformed community. And the call for us is to embrace it. Um, I, I know for some people, the, the thought or the attitude is that, you know what, my relationship with God is my relationship with God. It doesn't have to do with anybody else or any other thing. I wonder if that's what Paul's referring to on the people who say, I'm of, I'm of Christ. That would seem like the best of those four options. Uh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and oh, I'm of Christ. But you know what? The people who in that group who say, I'm of Christ, they might have been the ones who said, hey, it's just me and Jesus. Well, do you go to a church? No, 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 I don't need to go to a church because the whole world is my church. It's just me and Jesus. Well, do you have anybody who's in authority who can call you to account and encourage you and pray for you and you serve with on mission? No, but I'm on mission with Jesus. You see... What we're called into is a gospel-transformed community that Christ has formed. Christ loves the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, He's built a 
gospel is built a blood-bought, transformed community. That's what he's done with his work on the cross and what his work is still to this day. And the call and the invitation for you and me is to embrace it. And some of us in this room are resistant to gospel community. Some of us want to live more independently. We're not interested in being a part of a group where someone is speaking into our lives because that feels too threatening or too intimidating. And yet, I'm telling you, that's not what is, that's not what's been taught here in the scriptures. You are called into community, into relationship, into accountability, into encouragement, into mission together. We're called into a gospel transformed community. You know, you may or may not be familiar with the fact that our church has a a vision statement, a mission statement. We actually have five core values. And you can see them over on that wall out there in the commons. Our third of the five core values is this diverse community. And you might rightly ask, well, why do we say that? What's that all about? Is that just our attempt to be politically correct? I can't I cannot tell you this strongly enough. It is not because we believe it is politically correct. It's because we believe it is biblically correct. The Bible calls us into gospel transformed community and the picture of community in the scriptures, both in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation, as it gives us the picture of what will be is a very diverse community of people who come from all different places, but are united around the person of Jesus Christ. So we love and we desire to see in our church diversity of age and generation. We don't want to just be the young church, the family's church, the older generation church. We want to have a diversity of generations here as we gather because we can learn and benefit and be blessed by that diversity of people from different walks of life, different stages of life. We don't want to just be a a church of one race, but we want to enjoy the diverse experiences of people of different races and different experiences, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. We want to be a church of people who have different socioeconomic or educational experiences. And we come together. What we say is that, you know what? What leads us is not that or that or that, but it's Jesus. Jesus is what unites us. And so that's why we believe in diverse community. You see, when we do that and we say we want to renew the city by the power of the gospel, What we're saying is that as a church, we want to demonstrate to this city and beyond the power of the gospel. And that is put on display when we have a diverse community. It's when people look at it and say, you know what? What can explain that? Why would people from such different generations or ethnicities or educational levels or vocations all come together in this one group? Because while all those things are significant, they are secondary compared to the primary thing of Christ that unites us. It is putting the gospel on display. You see, the gospel transformed community is a preview. It's a display of the reality and the power of the gospel, but it's also a preview of what awaits all who are in Christ in glory. Yesterday, we went to go see a movie. It was a really good one. If you want to know about it, talk to me afterwards, but that's not what it's about. You know, every time you go to a movie, what do you see for the first 15 minutes? Previews. Right? Previews of coming attractions. The gospel transformed community is a preview of coming attractions for all who are in Christ. You know, recently this spring, not this spring, this fall, some of us were involved in something called Love Life, which was an amazing thing. And in the middle of November, a culmination of about 40 weeks, 
several people from multiple churches across this city gathered together to pray for the unborn, to pray for um, those who are uh, serving in an abortion industry, to pray for those who are facing crisis pregnancies, because as a church from a whole variety of different places, we care about the, the value of life. And it was a beautiful experience of gospel transformed unity because we probably would have never been together otherwise, but this united us. When we, uh, this, this, um, this year from January through May, have this season, what we call Can We Talk? A conversation about race and where we go from here. We will see churches gather from across this city to have a conversation about issues of race and things that have unfortunately divided us in our country. And what's so beautiful when we gather is that we see people from this church and this church and this church and this church across the city, yet united in their desire to address this issue because of our faith. And so it's a beautiful picture of how gospel-transformed community works together. So let me ask you this, a real quick question. Do a self-inventory of the relationships in your life for just a moment. As you think about the people that you spend time with, share meals with, do work with, interact with, live near, has the gospel transformed your relationships to the extent to where you can look at them and say, you know what? Had it not been for the gospel, this relationship would not exist. Has that happened? Or if you look around those relationships in your life, would someone be able to say, well, of course, because all the people are, well, relatively like that individual, because they share these things in common. In other words, is it Christ that marks the kind of relationships you're in, or is it something else? Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another, even as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You see, gospel transformed community is the gospel on display. It is a preview of what is coming. One thing I would say, if we're going to have a gospel vision with respect to this issue, is that we need to embrace a zero tolerance for division. We need to embrace a zero tolerance for division, which means that there's going to involve repentance and reconciliation in our relationships. You know, this was very convicting for me this week because on Wednesday I was having a conversation with someone in the church where I was made aware of something that I had done that had offended that person and possibly some others as well. And um, it wasn't the first time and it will not be the last. But I was convicted about that, particularly on Thursday when I was studying for this passage because then I'm studying for this passage and I'm seeing Paul just really preach against, you know, and speak against this issue of division and, and, and tolerating it and allowing it to, to continue. And I thought to myself of the big picture of creation, fall, redemption, and glory, and how Satan is the one who came into perfect community and said, I don't like it, I want to divide people. And he still to this day does. He wants to divide individuals in the same family and people in the same church. He hates community, particularly community around Christ. And as I thought about this comment that came my way on Wednesday, I thought to myself, how can I study this and not do something about it? And so the Holy Spirit, you know, whopped me upside the head. I picked up my phone and made a phone call and I said, hey, listen, yesterday you told me that I had um, I had done something to offend you and possibly some others. And I just want to 
again, tell you how sorry I am and I want to know if there's anything I need to do to fix you know, what's taken place between me and the others. And this person was gracious enough to say, as far as I'm concerned, I'm okay. But if there's anything else that I hear, I will let you know. And I said, please do. Please do. Because the Holy Spirit was saying, you know what? You need Jeff to have a zero tolerance for division. And I wish I could tell you that I always do that. Trust me, I don't. You may be saying, I, I don't either. Hey, let's work together on this. Let's say, God, help me to have a zero tolerance for division. To not just let it, you know, it doesn't just blow away, does it? That's the hope for a lot of us. It'll just, it'll just give it some time. It'll blow over. But no, God is calling us to come in and to repent and to reconcile. And so to have a gospel vision, we need to embrace the vision that God's given us to put it on display. But we also need to have a zero tolerance for it, for division. So let me just close by saying this. I'm probably over time. Verse 10. What has Paul said? He said, I appeal to you, brothers, and may I say sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. May we do that to the glory of God. Let's pray.